And I know I got several of the oil company people very excited about it because I showed them that they could go in and they could generate four to eight megawatts of power using the total fluid that's being produced in their particular oil fields. They haven't stepped up to do this because, again, they just want to pump oil and gas. <laughs> we need another industry to step in, and that would be the power industry. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dauenhauer. Today we are talking about oil field geothermal, taking existing well technology from oil and gas and grafting it onto geothermal power systems. I've been a longtime proponent of geothermal energy. It is perhaps the perfect energy source. It is always on. The earth never runs cold, and that could potentially provide what we call baseload energy, always running, safe and reliable, indistinguishable from coal, natural gas, or nuclear. No other renewable energy source, not even hydroelectric, can guarantee that it will always be available 100% of the time. The problem is that geothermal can be tricky. Some places on Earth aren't hot enough near the surface for the water to make steam. I've also been told that the components can be expensive, open to corrosion, you name it. But these reasons still don't make much sense to me. As you heard from our guests in the cold open, the oil and gas industry may hold the key. The problem here is that these folks and the power people almost never come together. I know. In the past year, I've worked for both. It always seems like the oil and gas folks find some of the most convoluted ways to bring energy to a site where, ironically, they're making energy. Think about it. A remote oil field site in North Dakota is powered by diesel generators. That diesel may have come from there. But it also may have come from Saudi Arabia, for all we know. Very rarely does this equipment run on natural gas from nearby wellheads, or in the case of the technology today, geothermal energy. An active well pad could potentially power itself just from the heat of a producing oil and gas well. When the well is providing both hydrocarbons and heat for geothermal energy, that's called co-production. That's feasible, but experts, including our guests, say that it might be a little too crowded in there. But producing geothermal energy from a non-producing or abandoned well sparks a lot of possibilities because the well has already been drilled and cased. Now, the problem with an existing well pad is that it wasn't drilled to make geothermal energy. It was drilled to make oil. oil that is black gold, Texas tea. And no one is thinking about a few kilowatts of electricity, especially if they A, don't have the technology to do it, and B, if there aren't any nearby transmission or distribution lines. Oilfield guys have always had the romanticized version of Jet Rink, the James Dean character in Giant, rolling up on Rock Hudson's place and letting them have it. My welcome in, babe. <laughs> I'm a rich boy. Me, I'm going to have more money than you ever thought you could have. You and all the rest, you stinking sons of Benedicts. That's one of my favorite movies. I just had to put that in there. There's also a third way, drilling a new well or a series of wells custom designed for optimum heat recovery. Little did Jet and perhaps the entire oilfield industry know that there may be an ocean of oil, but there's an entire world of geothermal potential just ready to be tapped. Our guest today is Dr. Will Gosnold, geology professor at the University of North Dakota and a man who carries the distinction of successfully demonstrating the first ever commercial geothermal facility from an oil well. The project certainly faced its challenges. It initially started in 2009, 
but the day they were notified by the Department of Energy they were getting their project funded, their corporate partner got bought out and the new owners walked. But the research continued and together with a California-based company called Calnetics, Dr. Gosnold and his team were able to demonstrate power at temperatures as low as 92 degrees Celsius in 2016. The project consisted of two of these Rankin cycle systems, each producing 125 kilowatts on site. Will is a North Carolina native and it certainly was a pleasure to get to talk to him recently. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Will Gosnold. We're here with Will Gosel, geology professor for the University of North Dakota. And Will, it says your project in North Dakota was the first co-generation of both hydrocarbons and geothermal energy. Uh, tell us the story. Take us through that. Well, actually, we began looking at two things, trying to do co-production using the fluids that come up with oil produced in a normal oil field operation. And we also had another project looking at simply tapping into the hot waters that are at depth, not involving producing oil as well, but just simply producing the water. And this project is simply using the hot water that's coming up. And although I keep making that point to many people, those <laughs> who haven't looked at it carefully really like to say it's co-production. Why do you think that gets confused that it's co-production? The idea of co-production came about in about 2005 with a paper in Oil and Gas Journal by some of my colleagues at SMU in Dallas. They just simply pointed out how much fluid is being produced in the oil patch. However, and I think you've run across this before, there's not enough being produced at any one site to make enough fluid to generate much power. What you need to do is put together a large number of wells. If you can drill a lot of wells from a single pad where you might have 12 to 16 wells, yes, you've got enough. And if they're spaced a mile or a half a mile apart, you're going to lose enough of the heat just by getting that water together that you're not going to get much out of it. Stake your claim here. What exactly was this research the first to do? What's the headline here about what that... It's a commercial operation. So it was the first First ever commercial operator. Yeah. Yeah. And who is the commercial operator? It's Continental Resources. They're the biggest producer of the Bakken in North Dakota. Now, let me ask you this. Are you using existing saline brine, what I guess we would sometimes call produced water, or are you introducing new water in the system? Yeah, this is produced water from the formation, and it's about three kilometers or 10,000 feet deep. And the produced water, it is, in my experience, a nastiest of the nasty. It's got everything in it. Dissolved solids, suspended solids. It's got a lot of oil content. It's corrosive. It scales. It does everything. So how do you overcome the fact that this water water is, to put it mildly, less than clean. How are you overcoming that? The water we're producing in this case is recharged in the outcrops in the Rockies and comes across and is relatively fresh. It's really only around 1,000 ppm total dissolved solids. So we do not have that problem. If we were to go farther out in the basin, yeah, we've got essentially seawater, 300,000 parts per million. So does it really matter what depth you go or maybe even what oil field you're in? I mean, is it different than the Permian? Is it different than the Bakken? What are the variables there? Right. This is actually what was called the Madison Group, and it's called a lodgepole formation, which is an oil producer, but the section we're producing from has relatively fresh water in it, so we do not have that problem. What if you did go into one of these saltier areas? 
Well, one thing the geothermal industry has been dealing with fluids that are far more corrosive than what you get out of an oil field for a long time. So the geothermal industry can handle this. What they would be doing is, for example, using plate heat exchangers, certainly not shell and tube, which would be much harder to clean. The temperatures that we're dealing with are low enough. They're below 150 degrees C, so we don't have dissolved silica to worry about, and that would be the worst problem. But the other things we could clean out, and of course the thing that I know the Department of Energy would like to see people do is to just look at those fluids after you get through with them and see if they're economic minerals. So there is a sort of value-added operation one could take on. There are three families of geothermal. We discussed these in earlier podcasts. We broke down to three families. Flash steam, dry steam, binary cycle. What is this process's closest relative? It's binary cycle. And take people through what that is. It's kind of like a heat exchanger, isn't it? Exactly. It involves a couple of heat exchangers. The reason for it is that the water we're producing is not hot enough to flash to steam and generate enough power to be useful. So what we do is we use a working fluid that has a boiling point of about 60 degrees Fahrenheit, really low. And this working fluid runs in a closed loop. It takes heat from the heat exchanger from the geothermal fluid, turns into a high-pressure gas that drives the turbine. Then we run it through a second heat exchanger to cool it back down to a fluid and send it back through the system. So it's a closed loop system. And that's what the binary power system is. I'm curious how much difference a horizontal well would make in geothermal energy? That's the the technology du jour. I would think that would be ideal. Is there a difference between using a horizontal well versus a old-fashioned vertical well? Absolutely, and that's exactly what we're promoting to developers, and that's what we're using. One of them is 800-something meters long, and the other one is 1.2 kilometers long. They're drilled horizontally. They're open holes. There is no casing. They're in a limestone formation that's strong enough for the hole to stay open. And that was the next part I had was I'm not an expert on casing, but it's my understanding that a horizontal well, especially one that's been fracked, basically would look like a sideways straw that's had a bunch of pinholes in it. Exactly. So it's okay if the casing is porous for this process. In fact, you'd have to have it that way, right? Depends on what kind of formation you're in. If we were to go into the Bakken formation, and we are working with an oil company right now to try to explore using their Bakken wells when they do become no longer economic to produce. And what the fracking does for them, it just simply creates greater borehole exposure to the resource for the oil. So they're fracking into these tight shales. The system we're using is drilled in limestone It is a really good water producer. It's relatively permeable, porous, and it's structurally strong. So we don't need a casing. Just compare this to what you would do with a conventional well drilled vertically into a formation to produce water. You might get a few tens of feet of borehole exposure. And then when you start pumping, you get a big drawdown because you're not getting much. So you can't really pump that fast. But with a horizontal well that goes out a kilometer or even two and a half, three kilometers, which they actually are doing right now, you have no problem with drawdown and you can produce an incredible amount of fluid. It just depends on what the size of the pump is you have in the well. Going back to the horizontal wells, we've got what we call zipper fracks, where there's a lot of technically wells on a single site. So I would have to think that would multiply the potential there. Is that really what you're looking at? These multi-well, single pads, a lot of energy density. Is that the idea? Yes, it certainly is. You get enough total fluid. And we looked at this, I think it was 2012, I made a presentation, and I know I got several of the oil company people very excited about it because I showed them that they could go in and they could generate four to eight megawatts of power using the total fluid that's being produced in their particular oil fields in the Bakken formation. They haven't stepped up to do this because, again, they just want to pump oil and gas. 
Yes. <laughs> they don't want to generate power. And one of the things that drives me crazy about the Bakken particularly, and maybe it's changed a little bit, but when I was starting out five years ago, they were flaring that gas off, right? Yeah, they're flaring most of the gas. It's not something I've looked at very carefully. I've just followed it peripherally. But, yes, they're doing much better. But you might want to check this out if you've looked into it before because I know there was this thing going around showing the satellite view of all the flares in the Bakken oil field. Well, they had manipulated the intensity of the light. It's not at all like that. <laughs> oh, it's they made it brighter? Yeah, they made it brighter. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, people on both sides of this issue make They make pay, huh? <laughs> Spin. It's brighter in North Dakota than it is in Chicago. That something strange yeah, not, there. Yeah. Not true. Okay, interesting. I think many of us are under the impression that it makes the most sense to retrofit an abandoned well and convert it to geothermal. Is that always the best option? Or I wouldn't say always the best option, but it is probably the safest one. Because if you're dealing with an old well, you need to know about well integrity and will there be problems with it. And it's probably best to go in and develop a system that is specifically designed for what you want to do. Interesting. When looking into your research, and you've been doing this for a long time, <laughs> don't mean to date you, but I saw that your exploration in the geothermal resources goes back several years. What particularly excites you, and what more could we be doing for geothermal? Yeah, I can go back to when I first started doing this kind of work. This goes back into the late 1970s, and then I was working on identifying, locating, quantifying the resource, and so on. And I looked at it, and at the time, they had binary power systems, but they were really adapted only for the relatively high temperature systems and you needed water flows that we couldn't even imagine. And then over time, what I've seen is that the development of better organic racket cycle engines and then small ones. Now, what I've seen within the last two years, we've been working with a company in Sweden who has come in with a huge forward step in organic racket cycle engines. And so where we are getting 250 kilowatts from the water flow that we have with this system we have, they could generate a megawatt. So oh, really? Is, we could quadruple what we've been looking at. Well, this seems so logical, and I've been pushing for this for a while. The drilling oil wells, there's heat. Why can't more oil wells produce more geothermal energy? Is it they're not hot enough? What's the major challenge there? Oh, actually, they can. But the thing is, the petroleum industry owns the wells. Their business is pumping oil and gas and selling it. They're not interested in generating electricity unless they could use that electricity on site to help them with their operation. So what it simply requires would be for a power company to come in and take over the ownership of the abandoned wells and then start producing the power. We need another industry to step in, and that would be the power industry. The only thing I'm concerned about with the power industry is I've been out to a lot of these leases out in the middle of nowhere. Where not many distribution lines out there. Is there maybe some issues with it being logistically difficult to run that much line out to a remote well to produce energy? Yeah, that's one of the things we've been looking at. And one of the things we've actually been trying to promote with the oil and gas industry in North Dakota, and that is with their development of the Bakken formation, they're producing oil and gas from areas that have absolutely no power line infrastructure. Nobody lives there. There's nothing there. And what they're doing is they're burning propane, factory gas, fuel oil, diesel fuel, probably costing themselves 28 cents a kilowatt hour just to generate electricity because there are no power lines. But what we've been trying to tell them is, hey, you could put in a couple of deep wells, drill them horizontally and produce the water, and you can generate all the power you need for your oil patch at about 5 cents a kilowatt hour. Now, dealing with the transmission line thing, this is an opportunity for developing distributed energy, which would be a really good thing from a lot of standpoints, security, cutting out transmission loss and things like that. 
and that is for the areas close to the oil patch. Up there in North Dakota, any interest? Who's the utility up there? Basin Electric is a big one that we work with. In fact, they put a lot of money into our geothermal project to help us because they're very interested in it. Great River Energy, a company in Minnesota which has power plants in North Dakota, is also very interested. They've actually come and visited us about our geothermal work, and they're keeping an eye out for it. Montana Dakota Utilities is another one. Then, of course, we have a lot of small power cooperatives. They buy the power from the majors and distribute it locally. Where do you think would be the perfect place to put this? You may be familiar with this, but you have to have the condenser side operating as well as you do the heat extinguisher that's taking the heat off the geothermal fluid. The most efficient way to do that is to have a water cool system because water absorbs much more heat much more quickly than air. You've seen air cooling systems. Our system's using air because we live in a cold climate, and that works pretty well. But what we've looked at is I'll just focus on North Dakota. We could go along the shores of Lake Sakakawea, use the bottom waters as the cooling fluid in the binary cycle. We could generate about 300 megawatts of power from the Montana border over to Bismarck, North Dakota. And that would be baseload, renewable. <laughs> exactly. From oil wells. Wow. Well, what I would do is what you suggested earlier, and that is we will come in and drill horizontal wells specifically for this rather than using the abandoned oil and gas wells. They may be suitable, but they may not. There are a number right along the Missouri River, especially in the hot spot for the Bakken. Those would be great. Would you consider your research pretty much finished for this technology, or is there another phase that you're working towards now? Well, one of the things we're doing now is we're trying to bring in a more complex system that is using the water we're producing for both power and for space heating and any kind of processing that requires heat. We've been looking at this from the standpoint we could go into each one of the four western campuses that are part of the University of North Dakota system. They could do all of their heating and cooling with geothermal fluids. This isn't the ground source heat pump system, but this is using that hot water that's maybe 85 to 110, 120 degrees Fahrenheit, but they could do all of their heating and cooling that way, and it would be an incredible use of resource, totally eliminating all of the fossil fuels that they'd be using. Much more efficient just to go straight to heat, right? Precisely. Okay. Will, I'm going to finish up uh, Finish up with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies. going to start with natural gas. It's widely abundant. It's going to last a long time. It's less polluting and more efficient than coal. Crude oil. For years, I've been saying crude oil is too valuable to burn. Nuclear. Too expensive. Coal. We really need to get away from coal, and I think we are making that move. Coal just is not going to be economically competitive with anything else. Wind. Great stuff. The development is tremendous. Solar. Always been very interested in that. The Chinese are looking at solar collectors and highways. Oh, that's really cool. Biofuels. Don't know much about it. Hydroelectric. Well, I grew up in North Carolina, Asheville, so I'm familiar with the TVA, and it's great stuff. I'm doing geothermal. Let's just start with conventional geothermal and then your version of geothermal. Globally, we're seeing a lot more geothermal development in the high-temperature systems, flash plants, and dry steam, et cetera, and things like that. So we'll see more of this. There will be more development in the U.S. The U.S., of course, is the biggest producer and developer of power geothermal in the world. The oil field stuff, I would like to see developed. We need more information out there as possible. We'll help other people get to it. So that may be coming. And baseload power is the thing. I totally agree with that. Electric vehicles. I wish I had one. (laughs) 
see, starting to see a lot more. I'm energy. pulling for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Energy efficiency. Yeah, everything we can do. Like this company that we started working with from Sweden. I mean, for them to make a fourfold increase in the power they could generate by engineering design is just tremendous. The more we can do with that, the better off we're going to be. And then finally, nuclear fusion. Well, as a person who has a bachelor's degree in physics and PhD in geophysics, I've always been interested in that, but nobody's been able to make it work yet. It's just like the enhanced geothermal systems. Everybody talks about that and how much power we could get out of that. This is the deep systems, but nobody made it work yet. We'll <laughs> so see. We'll see. How's that? Very good. All right. Will Gossel, University of North Dakota, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Glad to be on. That was Dr. Will Gosnell, geology professor at the University of North Dakota and leader of the first research team to successfully demonstrate commercial geothermal energy from oil fields. We wish him the best of luck on his continued research and hope to see converted geothermal locations in the near future. And I also want to thank former Texas State Representative Warren Chisholm, who I knew during my days working for the Clean Coal Foundation. He was the first person I ever heard talk about the potential of oil field geothermal more than 10 years ago. It was probably one of dozens of conversations we had around the Capitol in those days, but it's always stuck with me. So, Chairman, thank you for the inspiration, and I hope you're doing well back in Texas. You can check out pics of the project and more at Host Energy on Instagram and online at energy-cast.com. And be sure to rate us on iTunes. That way, more people can find us. All guests are sent the wrong completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 37, as fate would have it, next week we'll be actually talking to that Swedish company Dr. Goslin mentioned in the interview. They're making massive amounts of energy from ultra-low temperatures. We'll find out how they do it. Until then, I'm Jay Downhauer. We'll see you next time.